Hi, this is Adam Hughes, and you're listening to Episode 8. Seventh Son, Book 2, Deceit. A podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Read by the author. For more information about this novel, please visit www.jchutchins.net. I'm Nathan Fillion. This is the story so far. As the hijacked Russian nukes roared toward their targets a half-world away, John, Jack, General Hill, and Dr. Kleinman raced to the Seventh Sun Facility's express elevator, intent on stopping Daniel Sheridan. Sheridan, whose mind had been sidejacked by John Alpha, spoke to the men via the elevator's intercom. She had infiltrated the facility's op center and now completely controlled the compound. As the clones attempted to pry open the elevator doors, Alpha deactivated the lift's braking system, sending it plummeting downward. Meanwhile in the common room, Alpha's destructive plot continued. Mike and Father Thomas stared in horror as Kilroy 2.0's five computer terminals, all hacked by John Alpha, shut down one by one. Kilroy unleashed a volley of anti-hack programs, finally salvaging one computer from Alpha's onslaught. As the episode came to a close, John Alpha used Daniel Sheridan's recently reactivated Code Phantom security clearance to access a U.S. military mainframe. Using the exclusive power of Code Phantom, he flatlined an anti-missile defense system in the Middle East and grinned in triumph as the nine Russian nukes struck their targets. Chapter 12 the elevator doors gave a low growl as John and Jack pried them open. Dr. Kleiman couldn't be bothered. He was ripping strips from his lab coat and wrapping them around General Hill's burned fingers. The sight before them wasn't encouraging. The elevator was trapped between two floors. Only the upper half of the doorway opened onto a level. The rest of the seven-foot doorway was filled with the stuff that lives in the in-between. Dusty, crumbling concrete. Rusted metal reinforcement beams, black spiders the size of half dollars. John stood on his tiptoes and squinted into the three-foot gap. The opening was at the end of a curving hallway. Somewhere just past the bend in the hall, a fluorescent light flickered sporadically, strobing long shadows against the dust-covered walls. The echoes of steadily dripping water bounced down the hall. Whatever floor they had stopped at, it hadn't been used in a lifetime. Jack stepped past John and took a look. He shrugged, reached up to the metal flooring and began to pull himself up toward the opening. A large spider scrambled across his hands and then raced down Jack's arm. He screamed and let go of the ledge, his feet slamming back onto the elevator's floor. The impact boom, oom, oom, oomed throughout the empty hall. The elevator cabin creaked, then it slowly screeched downward and then stopped. The four men stared up at the opening, which had shrunk by about six inches. I'm an asshole, Jack said. John sighed. He turned and sized up his companions. Kleinman, they'd have to worry about the frailty from his age. Broken bones weren't an option down here. General Hill, monolith, all muscle. It might be tight, but he could squeak by. But Jack, dude, 
You'd better lay off the zingers when we get out of this, John said, forcing a smile. He hoped it appeared encouraging. It's going to be tight now, Jack. You're going to have to suck it in big time. Jack chuckled, blushing. So I'm a fat asshole. Despite Jack's insults up in the common room, John smiled, a genuine one this time. He checked the ledge for spiders, brushed a few away, then hoisted himself upward. He easily slipped his head and shoulders past the doorway's ceiling. He lay his chest on the grimy floor and pulled himself forward. The mildewy smell of a thousand cellars filled his nostrils. John felt fingers lacing around his ankles and feet. Good. They were helping him push forward. Behind him, the elevator creaked again. If it slid any more, it cut him in half. We might want to hurry this up a little, John said. The others pushed him clear. John stood, glanced around. The walls were literally splitting in some places. Jagged cracks lanced from floor to ceiling. The sound of that faraway sputtering light made him think of rattlesnakes. It ain't the Holiday Inn, but it'll do, he called. Let's get you out next, old man. Kleinman lifted his trembling hands through the opening, and John grabbed his wrists. The doctor slid easily across the floor. He stood up and marveled at his tattered lab coat. It was nearly black from the filth. Jack was next. It was indeed a tight fit. John didn't think the man could make it. But when the elevator groaned once more, Jack found desperate inspiration for gut-sucking. When he wedged his way past the clearance, John could almost hear the cartoon pop of a champagne cork. I'll never eat a baby Ruth again, Jack said, panting. Hill was another close call. The man was thicker than John had expected, but in the end the four of them stood in the dim hall, covered in dust and grime, filthy, looking like coal miners. Where are we, Kleinman? Jack asked as he fidgeted with his wire rims. The old man wedged his own smudge glasses back on his nose and squinted at the curve of the dark hall. At the very end of the passage, a pair of dull silver doors glimmered in the flickering overhead light. A dusty sludge obscured the faded yellow letters printed on the wall beside the doorway. Oh my, Kleiman whispered. It's been twenty years. This, this is where it all began. I thought you said it all began at the womb, Jack said. We're well beneath the womb, Kleinman replied. They walked to the end of the corridor, toward the doors and the malfunctioning light. Water dribbled from the cracks in the walls here, creating murky puddles on the concrete floor. When they came to the doorway, John reached out to brush away the cobwebs from the six-inch-tall yellow letters. He hesitated. A few of the letters were legible. O-T-W. He rushed his palms against the rest of the sign, hearing the dust hiss against the floor as it fell. He stood back and read the sign. Beside him, Jack swore and gave a grim laugh, the hollow sound echoing down the hallway behind them. It read, Proto-Womb. Father Thomas stared at the computer screen, astonished. From his vantage point on the couch, he had watched Kilroy's monitors go dead one by one. And yet the last monitor had come back to life, its corresponding CPU had rebooted. Thomas didn't know much about computers. He printed email because it was easier to read that way, but he knew a resurrection when he saw one. Somewhere between the real world and the world of computers, Dania Sheridan, John Alpha, it's John Alpha now, had essentially wrapped an invisible hand around the power cords of Kilroy's computers and permanently yanked each one from its electrical socket.
but Kilroy had brought one back to life. Thomas had seen that. Lazarus come forth. What happened, Kilroy? Thomas asked, joining Dr. Mike by the workstation. What did Alpha do? The hacker didn't look away from the remaining monitor. He was enthralled in the process of opening on-screen folders, peeking at their contents, running diagnostic programs. He spiked me, Kilroy finally hissed. Shot straight through the grid, right through my firewalls. And my walls aren't the -the off-the-shelf Norton crap either. Kilroy double-clicked another directory and stared at the few files inside. He moaned. The son of a bitch dumped my hard drives, then spun them until they fried. That's the sand in the Vaseline. It's easy to recover data when it's tossed into the trash. It's impossible when the hard drive's a smoldering hunk of shit. Kilroy slammed his fists on the table. He tore off his thick glasses and tossed them aside. They skittered across the table and fell to the floor. Kilroy covered his face. I'm sorry, Kilroy, Thomas said. He squatted down and picked up the spectacles. Down here by the CPUs, he could smell what Kilroy had described. The tangy stench of burnt circuits. Only one of the computers was still whirring. Gone. All gone. The hacker muttered. Spiked me. Spiked me. What does that mean, spiked you? Dr. Mike asked. Kilroy lifted his red face from his hands and glared at the profiler. Mike extended his good hand upward, making peace. I don't know, man. I wouldn't ask if I didn't know. Kilroy slammed his hand on the table again. One of the keyboards chittered from the impact. It means what it sounds like. He accepted his glasses from Thomas. He did not put them on. Alpha filled my PCs with arrows, drove nails through my monitors, crucified my data, blasted it into smithereens, shot it into the sun. Clear enough for you? He must have scoped my system and written code to cut it into ribbons. How could he do that? Thomas asked. Kilroy squinted his eyes shut and shook his head. I don't know. He finally replied. But mission impossible is mission fucking accomplished. This computer network will self-destruct in five seconds. (laughs) They're wasted. I've lost it. Lost it all. But you brought one of them back, Thomas said. His voice rose to an encouraging tone. I saw it. I don't know much about computers, but I know... (laughs) My life is gone, Kilroy screamed. My sights, my archives, the data is gone. Is that a sign from your god? Has he declared war on the false prophet? He reached out, placed his open hand across the screen of a dead monitor, and shoved it. It teetered backwards off the table and crashed to the floor. Its screen imploded. Worthless, Kilroy seethed. His great belly banged against the table as he stood up and waddled away. But your website should still be up, Dr. Mike said, his gaze following Kilroy. The data you have on your sites should be okay. Isn't that the way it works? When you make a website, you post the data to a server. When people access a site, they access those servers, right? (laughs) Those were the servers, Kilroy said, waving a hand at the CPUs. He was at the common room doorway now. I'd post to the web, let the flock read, and then pull the data when I logged off. I controlled the flow of information. There is no backup. The hacker tried the doorknobs. They didn't move. He closed his eyes and pressed his forehead against the doors. But it's not all gone, Thomas said. You saved something. I saw you. I did. I did. He gently banged his head against the door as he said this. But what's the point? It's like saving a man's life but making him comatose in the process. 
I have a skeleton without the skin, priest. I can hop on the net, but I'd have nothing to share. I've got plenty of apps, but very little data. It's almost as if I just pulled the thing right from its box. What data? Kilroy turned his head. Eh? I said, what data? Thomas replied. What do you still have? (laughs) Oh, don't pretend to be interested. When he saw that Thomas's gaze hadn't wavered, he relented. Okay, my email contact list to the flock, buddy lists for the chat programs, the oh-so-precious data from the CDC, Geonomicon, a little more, a little less, but who the hell knows it's been scrubbed. But there's still something in there, Kilroy. A church can burn to the ground, but the soul of the place is still there. It's just a building, after all. It's just data of the brick-and-mortar variety. You can rebuild. After all, you've saved what's most important of all. (laughs) What's that? Thomas smiled gently. Your parish. Kilroy turned to the priest, a sneer on his face. Suddenly, his eyes glistened in understanding. Oh, you're good, Padre, he said as he placed his spectacles on his round face. You're right. I can still broadcast if I want. I could rebuild. It'd be a bitch, as the man over here says. Ain't it always, Dr. Mike said, tipping a salute with his good hand. Kilroy walked back to the workstation. He slouched into his chair and began typing. Thomas and Mike exchanged a knowing look. Good work, bro. No problem, bro. But it's not all bad news, Kilroy reported as they stepped back to the terminal. He activated several windows on the remaining monitor. I gave Alpha two heaping spoonfuls of his own medicine during that little spike session. (laughs) I saved what data I could from the other computers and kept this one up and running. That you know. And we've still got access to the web via the satellite uplink. But the best news is that Alpha doesn't know any of this. I, the hacker, hacked the hacker who was hacking me. (laughs) A layman present, Dr. Mike said. I bit back. I cut the common room from the ops system, created a blind spot. He can't see what I'm doing on what's left of this system. We may be trapped in here, but he can't monitor us. He can't see us plot our escape. Something we'll be doing soon enough. How? Father Thomas asked. (laughs) Used something Alpha didn't know I had. Something he hadn't scoped. Something new. A golden ticket. A way to build a hack-proof shell. He turned back to the monitor and didn't elaborate. Thomas and Dr. Mike looked at each other and shrugged. They had been in West Hollywood when Kilroy received the egg security key from Binary Ferry. So we're planning our escape, Dr. Mike said, sliding into the seat next to Kilroy. Not yet, the hacker replied, launching a web browser. The default Newswire webpage began to load on the screen. Remember the attack from Russia? We first have to catch up on current... Huh? Kilroy's voice trailed off. The news page was dominated by headline after headline. Russia launches nuclear strike against Saudi Arabia. Catastrophic death tolls reported. Oh, God in heaven, Father Thomas whispered. No, Dr. Mike said. Hell on earth. The double doors beside the weathered proto-womb sign were covered with barnacles of rust, but they were unlocked. Before them now lay another strange hallway, more murky water pooling in corners. Jack, John, Hill, and Clyman stepped past the threshold. 
Clyman flipped a light switch near the doorway. No one spoke as the fluorescent bulbs came to life. The walls of this straight hallway were made of floor-to-ceiling glass. About halfway down the corridor, two metal doors were built into the glass walls, one on the left, the other on the right. These doors opened to rooms that lay just beyond the thick, dust-covered panes. John gazed past the glass wall into the room on their right. It was a small laboratory. A large black table dominated the center of the room, complete with microscopes coated in freckled films of mold. Beyond the table was a bank of twenty stainless steel cages, ten on the floor, ten more on top of them. They were empty, but a steady stream of dripping water flowed from the ceiling onto the tops of the cages. Rainstorm on a tin roof. "'What's with all the water?' John asked. Must be seepage, General Hill said. The memory hypercomputer array is several hundred feet above us. The space between there and here is used by the array's cooling system. Huge refrigeration units, hundreds of them, circulating super-chilled water up to the quasi-craze. He nodded at the steady dripping. The fridge units must be covered in damn near blocks of ice for this kind of runoff. Must be a slight temperature irregularity. That's one hell of a thaw, Jack whispered. It takes a hell of a system to cool the Q-craze, Hill replied. John nodded to himself and turned his head, now peering through the glass wall on his left. His gaze flitted to four massive desks with archaic computers built into them. He thought fleetingly of a 60s-era NASA mission control room. And then he looked past them, too, to the wall. Seven large spheres dominated the entire length of the room. They seemed to almost float in midair, the spheres were held in place by once elegant, but now rust-covered, metal arms protruding from the wall. The cloning orbs were green, just as the ones John had seen from the womb level upstairs. But these were opaque, not translucent like the ones before. The cumulative effect was of giant wall sconces made of jade. Above each orb beamed a small spotlight. This is where we conducted the first cloning experiments, Kleinman said from behind them. You're looking at our first cloning chamber. You're looking at history. Ancient history, Hill said. There's no time for explanations. Let's go. We have to find our way back to the upper levels. Jack ignored the general. What did you do here? He asked, facing Kleinman. General Hill sighed and turned away. He stared into the cloning chamber beyond the streaked glass wall. The same thing you do today, Jack. Only we did it 30 years ago. We cloned animals. We started with mice. That's where your research is now, if memory serves. After the mice, we cloned cats. Talk about nine lives, John murmured, eyeing the equipment. Kleinman pretended not to hear this. We then experimented on dogs and finally primates. A chimpanzee named Gene, in case you were wondering. Jack shook his head. I still don't see how the scientists here could be decades ahead of the rest of the world. This kind of cloning was not possible 30 years ago, Kleiman. It just wasn't. And yet here you stand, next to one of your brethren. How? Kleinman shrugged. We had unwavering approval from the upper echelons of the U.S. government at the time, and a tacit green light by the U.N. We had unlimited resources, no deadline to speak of. We also had Bregner's wartime research as a blueprint. We've never submitted a budget for approval to any government agency, ever. We don't exist on paper anywhere. Heck, I don't think Orlando's service records are even on file anymore. In a government filled with shadows, we're one of the darkest. We had the power to recruit the most brilliant people on the planet. Creative, talented folks. 
They understood. Clyman paused for a moment and then glanced at John. Yes, ultimately Seventh Son was the brainchild of a former Nazi. He was a man who did unspeakable things. But Bregner was a genius. The ideas he had. Revolutionary, regardless of his former politics. In the end, his ideas were purely scientific. Hugh Sheridan doesn't think so, John said. From beside him, Hill grunted. The general didn't take his eyes away from the cloning chamber. Hugh Sheridan is a disgruntled employee, he said. So is John Alpha, Jack retorted. He glared at the old man. Whatever happened to your oath, Kleiman, to do no harm? You're being far too short-sighted about this, Kleiman said. Hill grunted again. <laughs> this isn't the time. No, wait, just another moment, Orlando. Things have gone wrong here, Jack, I won't deny it, but you haven't considered what we've created here. What, World War III? I'm talking about the long-term applications of cloning and of memory totality. Imagine if we had Albert Einstein's memory and blood samples stored in that hypercomputer above us. Or Martin Luther King Jr.'s. Would you be saying such things then? Oh, what crap! You're taking me back to college bioethics class. The argument's tired. But how can the argument be tired when the technology has never existed to refute it? Just listen. If only we had a backup of their memory totalities, Jack. We could clone them, bring them back. Einstein, King, Kennedy, all could be with us right now, doing their life's work again, making this world a better place. What about someone still alive? Stephen Hawking, the most brilliant cosmologist of the 20th century. But Lou Gehrig's disease has locked him in a body that can't speak, can barely move. He talks through a computer on his wheelchair. We could clone a person like that, Jack. Download his memories into a new body. Give a person like that a new life, a renewed life, a second chance, or a third chance, a fourth. The human experience must no longer be limited to a span of 70, 80 years, or on the health of an individual, or even the individuality of an individual. Imagine two or three such geniuses. Imagine what they could accomplish working together, the answers they could find. Recording a memory totality ensures something much greater for humanity. Immortality. Jack said. Kleiman nodded eagerly. The ability to learn more, live more, experience more. A revolution in evolution. Perhaps one day anyone could have access to this technology. To live forever, Jack. To dedicate literal lifetimes to your research, your family. Could you turn that down? You're putting this in the same category as tummy tucks and Botox injections, Jack said. Is there anything wrong with such ubiquity? Yeah, John chimed in. It makes you sound like a used car salesman, and as crazy as that fucking Nazi. The general's right, we don't have time to listen to your grandiose bullshit. The clones turned to Hill, a sign for them to leave. But Hill wasn't looking at them. Suddenly, the man flinched and pressed his hand against the glass wall. He strode toward the metal door that led to the proto-womb's cloning chamber. He opened it. What is it? Kleinman asked. Hill was now stepping through the doorway. Look into the corner of the room, he said, pointing. Pushed carelessly there were two hospital-style gurneys, their frames covered in rust. One lay on its side, its padded bed pressed against the wall. Resting on the floor nearby was a large pile of empty sandwich wrappers and potato chip bags and crumpled diet soda cans. The telltale remnants of a squatter. Someone's been down here, John said.
You've been listening to Seventh Son, Book Two, Deceit, a podcast novel written by J.C. Hutchins. Thanks for listening. Please visit www.jchutchins.net for more information about this novel and about the author. Themed music generously provided by Cell Dweller. Please visit the band's website at celldweller.com and at myspace.com slash celldweller. Graphic elements for website art and album art for this podcast generously created by Magic Torch. Please visit the company's website at magictorch.com. This recording and its contents are copyright 2006 J.C. Hutchins.